Father in heaven, we're thankful for this morning. We pray now as we look at the life of Christ, especially closing scenes of his life, that you send your Holy Spirit upon us. Guide us and direct us to have the Spirit of heaven so as we leave this place, people will know that we've been with Jesus. Lord, help us to see you clearly now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This could have happened to any couple, but I want you to imagine a young pastoral couple. No, it's not my wife and I. (laughs) You're going to have to use your imagination this morning. A young pastoral couple, and they've had a really busy week. They're preparing for a student pastor assignment or two on the weekend, and yet they are endeavoring to get their house picked up for Sabbath too. Not that the house has been really that much in disarray. It's just a matter of a habit. There they are. It's Friday afternoon. They've been cleaning around the house. Husband's been out doing some chores. And they're just down to the last few items on their list to handle before Sabbath comes. None of you have ever experienced that, have you? Where you, you, you start looking at the time and you see the list and you wonder if you've got enough time to get everything done. Well, there they are with their last few things to do. And in that household, the last thing was to clean the bathroom. All right. <laughs> and they didn't draw straws to do it, but nonetheless, whoever got done with some of the chores first the bathroom would fall into their list of things to do. But it seemed like the other chores were taking quite a bit of time, and they kept putting off that last chore. (laughs) And then the phone rang, interrupted one of them, and then the doorbell rang, and there was an unexpected guest. Now, in your story of what could happen to you on a Friday afternoon, you might put in somebody that's more important or you look up to differently than what I'm going to put into here. So you can imagine whoever you want to at your door, but I'm going to imagine that it's a young pastoral couple and the most heart-pounding incident to have on a Friday afternoon when you're not totally ready for Sabbath is for the conference president to be in town and to show up at your door. And some of them used to be known to go along and to take their finger along bookcases and see if there was dust, right? (laughs) This one's not quite that way. But the conference president is there. I've just come through town. I got a meeting over in such and such a place on Sunday. I thought I'd just stop by and say hi and have prayer with you. Do you have a minute? And you know you don't have a minute. But as a couple, they invite him in. He sits down, seems to make himself comfortable. And they begin to have a a visit, nice visit there. And, of course, in the back of their mind is that list, right? And the president is talking about different things in the area and what are, what are some plans you have and what's going on in your church. And, it, of course, the pastor's excited about it. His wife is kind of excited about it, too. But they both know that they have a list left to go. And partway through, he says, you know, I've been on the road a while. Can I use your restroom? <laughs> All right. So that's the last place that you want him to go looking for dust, right? And there it is. Actually, I've never met one of those conference presidents who goes along and, and does that. Uh, they've kind of, that's kind of old school. It's out now. But he goes into there, and they take it as an opportunity to go about the rest of their list. And so they begin to pr- even go faster now because now they've had an extra appointment that they didn't foresee, and now they're wondering if they're going to get everything done, including that bathroom in there. 
And so they just become oblivious to the fact that 10 minutes has gone by, 20 minutes has gone by, and the president is still in the bathroom. Wife gives husband a little look and a nod, going down and check out what's happening. He goes down the hall, restroom's there on the right. He begins to hear a curious sound from the restroom. Not usual restroom sounds, but and then, a, and then the water begins to run, and then another sound, and then the toilet flushes, and then the water begins to run again, and this starts going on for a little while, and then it goes silent, and so the young pastor does any, what any young pastor would do, he knocks on the door, and, and at first the knock just seemed like a little timid thing, like, <laughs> and then it gets louder. Are, are you okay? Nothing still. Two knocks later, nothing. Third knock, nothing. He looks at the door handle, and visually he looks at his resume and figures he could send it to another conference if he opens this door, and he's down having troubles. And he tries the door handle, and it, it's unlocked, and he opens the door. And the president's not at the sink. He's not over by the shower, because it's a bigger bathroom, but he's right there at the toilet the toilet brush and a toothbrush. He must have found the pastor's toothbrush under the sink. One of those ones you use for cleaning, right? And he's cleaning the toilet. And if I was the pastor, I would slowly close the door, walk back, <laughs> and consider sending my resume somewhere else. <laughs> no. He goes back and tells his wife. And you can imagine that story would go down in the history of that family. Now, I don't know if that story has ever happened, but if you could somehow bottle the shock value of somebody showing up to your home, serving you in a way that was unexpected like that, and then you begin to read some of the Gospels, you might just barely begin to appreciate the shock value of some of the things that Jesus did. Now, that doesn't compare, does it? Someone with a toothbrush cleaning your toilet with your toilet bowl brush doesn't even begin to compare to what we're going to see here today. But I hope that that would kind of permeate your mind as to what it would feel like to have a secret servant in your house, unexpected, and at the last place you would look, this person that you look up to would be the servant in your house. Because that's exactly what happens here in the Gospel of John. In John, we find Jesus has tried to teach and show his love. And we get down to John chapter 13, and Jesus knows it hasn't set in yet. That somehow all the teaching and the miracles and pulling the disciples aside and explaining things to them just hasn't set in yet. Because you read in the scripture reading, right? They're bickering and arguing. All the, they, They've got greater-than-thou syndromes going on. And if you compare John 13 to some of the other accounts of the Last Supper, we know they're arguing, and we know that they're trying to figure out who's greatest. Even up to this very story, they're still comparing themselves to one another. It hasn't even set in yet. And time is running out. Not before Sabbath, right? Like a chore list. But before Jesus is going to make a journey and leave these disciples 
seemingly on their own with just the Holy Spirit guiding. He wants them to see something clearly before he leaves. John 13, verse 1, it was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world, go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He's taught them before this. and In some ways, he has showed them his love. But now, the full extent. He's even willing, not just to become a human being, which some have said that the God of the universe becoming a human being and becoming into a mother's womb is like a human being becoming an ant. Now, that doesn't even compare. Does it? Think about that. You look at every single star up there, and I was watching a program the other night, and they believe that each one of those stars more than likely has a cluster of planets, a solar system around each one of those stars, and those stars are innumerable out there. And yet, this individual we're talking about is going back up to the heavens to rule over all creation. It means he stepped down from the heavens to come to our creation. You can't even grasp it. Can you put your hands around the universe and, and somehow grasp it with your mind? If you can't, then you really can't grasp the full magnitude of the story. We can never fully fathom what it would be like if we truly understood this, the, the, not only the creator of the world, but the, eventually the savior of the world becoming one of us. And now, in this story, he doesn't even go to that far. That's, that's servanthood enough, just becoming one of us and showing us through miracles and teaching the way. But now, he becomes the lowliest of them to show them the way. The secret servant amongst them. Not with a toothbrush, but with hands that formed Adam and Eve. With hands that were there in the beginning that held our world and it stood fast. That voice that spoke and things came to be. This is the one we are talking about here. And now he is going to lower himself, not to just being a human being, but now he's going to lower himself to washing filth away from us as well. The full extent of his love. He's going to show it to them. Now, we have servants in our world, don't we not? You all are wearing clothing or something made by somebody who was not you. Maybe you did make something of your own. But we, the world is full of servants, but the world is not full of servants like this who are not paid to do that, who really doesn't gain he can't even gain one of these converts he's trying to get out of this. He shows him the full extent of his love, and Judas still wants to betray him. He's wanting that guy to really turn. He's not paid to do it. He's not promised any baptisms if he does it. He's not promised anything. He just does it because he loves them. And so he hopes by this scene of love that they themselves will become servants of love. That the world would see us as human beings, yes, but all of a sudden we would show forth as servants unexpected to them in ways that they could see the love of Jesus. He's hoping they'll grasp that. And go on to the next verse, verse 2. The evening meal was being served. Oh, protocol. You want policy and protocol? Here it is. Really, the foot washing before the meal being served. But what they have here is individuals we read from the other account in Mark, and you compare it to Luke and others, who have been bickering. The meal is even going out, and they're still wanting to know who's greatest in the kingdom of God. Up until this very 
meal. And it comes out, and you're sitting there in your chair, and I'm sitting in my chair, and Jesus has more than likely got the first place, because he's the teacher. They probably put him in the first place. And we're all reclining, and the meal is coming out in front of us, and we have something in our hearts, don't we? If we're in this story. There's betrayal in this story. One of, the, one of us wants to kill Jesus, or, or at least force him to do what we want him to do. Others of us, like one of the zealots, on our human nature, we love to knife Matthew, uh, for being a Roman sympathizer. Others of us, we, we really don't like Peter because he's a big mouth and seems to get the show all the time. And this whole bickering atmosphere is right there while the meal is going, being placed in front of them. And Jesus, knowing that, he even says here he knows that Judas Iscariot was prompted to betray him. In verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Knew this all. Not only that they're bickering, it's right in front of his face. Not only is the meal out there, somebody has forgotten to hire a servant. But he knows in conscious divinity, he's conscious of his divinity. He knows that God has made him ruler of all things. Even from that young age where we see him in the temple, he begins to know that. And divinity seems to flash through him at times. And here it says that he knew all things are under his power. Can you imagine that? If you had the thought that I'm the creator of the world. There's no servant. Who would you point to to serve you? I'm the one that's the first place at the table. I should not be the one to serve. I know I am divine. Now, you could, your human nature would twist that, wouldn't it? His doesn't do that. He knows. And, his, and conscious divinity, he's conscious of his divinity. Yet he doesn't twist it to his advantage. He knows that he's the creator of the world, that God has placed everything under his power, yet he sets it aside. It doesn't, it's almost like it's meaningless to him if only he could show these people the true love that it was all about. And so he girds himself and wraps himself. And after that, he poured out water into a basin. And you can notice, they would see him. If you're right there, visualize it. Notice, there he is, leaving first place at the table. And maybe they were still bickering when he did that. Eventually, they go silent, because what's happening? He's vacated the first spot, and now he's going around to every spot. They're arguing, they're bickering, the food is being served, and they're getting ready to eat it, and now all of a sudden, washing in silence. And what role has Christ taken on? Wouldn't this be more surprising than opening up that bathroom door and finding the conference president on the floor with a toothbrush and your scrub brush for the toilet? Even more so. A secret servant has arisen, one whom they never saw it coming. Because they themselves wouldn't do that. And if you want some text to, to nail this one down, go back to Luke 17. Keep your finger there. Luke 17. Starting at verse 7. Jesus has told them that they need to have faith at least as a mustard seed. And if they did that, they could uproot and plant mountains. 
Verse 7 says, Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes from in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? So he's got a servant out in the field there, and the servant has come in. Would the master now say, Oh yeah, come on, I've made a meal for you here. You've worked so hard plowing my fields. No, that's what the text is saying here. It's, it's saying, no, he wouldn't do that. Come now and sit down to eat. Would he not rather say, prepare my supper? You've worked the fields. Now come on in and prepare my supper. Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Jesus is telling them a story here. And here they're talking about faith, and they're talking about sin and all of these different things. And, and Jesus talks about if your brother re- sins, rebuke him. And you're trying to gain your brother, right? Forgive him. And he throws this parable in there. It almost seems detached from the situation. But he's saying, I'm the master. You're the servant. You need to do what you've been told to do. And then you can eat with me. Is that what he's saying? No. He's actually almost saying, that's the way you would do it. But I am actually, if you look over here in this story, I'm actually the one who's serving you first. So he's describing how things should be and how they would expect it to be and how really when they were done with their ministry, you just did what you were called to do. But now we get over here in this picture and it's almost contrary to it. It almost seems the opposite. It's almost like he's saying, yes, you should serve me after you go out into the field and all of that, but now I'm serving you. He reverses it on them. So the servant is the one who serves, not the master. Isn't that clear from this? The master waits to be served. The servant waits on the master, not the other way around. So they've heard Jesus' teaching on this, so it would have been really surprising to see now the master serving them. And now you go on back to 1 Samuel 25. And we see someone girding themselves, or at least taking on the form of a servant. 1 Samuel 25, verse 41. This is talking about Abigail. David's servants have come to Carmel and have, in essence, put a proposal before her. And instead of her getting all high and mighty and feeling like she has somehow deserved this, after all those years of putting up with Nabal, the fool, she bows herself to the ground. And it says here in 1 Samuel 25, verse 41, she bowed down with her face to the ground and said, here is your maidservant ready to serve you and wash the feet of my master's servants. I'm even willing to wash my master's servant's feet. I am lower than royalty. And yet she's going to accept a proposal to be of royalty. You see the servant heart here coming in this text. Only the servant is the one who washes the feet. Only the servant is the one who prepares the meal. Those are things of servants, not masters and royalty. And yet she serves with a servant heart as well. So servants, they're the ones who wash the feet of their masters. And yet Jesus washes the feet of his servants. Servants, they're the ones who come and bow down before the king. And yet here's the king of the universe bowing down before his servants. The ones who eventually will work the harvest field and he'll just say, you've gotten, you've done only what a worthy servant should do. And so now we go back to John 
And those teachings and those stories could have popped into their mind. So here they are, once again, arguing, eating, beginning to eat. The washing starts taking place. Some silence takes place. And do you think the question of who's greater in the kingdom, do you think it was forever silenced by this act? Now, there's a commentator. It's called People's New Testament. And I quote, something more than ordinary must have caused so remarkable an act of this washing. No one would condescend to the menial but needful duty. The Lord, full of conscious divinity. That's what we read about up there. He knew all power was his. He arose, girded on the towel, and began the office. A rebuke to their ambitious strife, far more powerful than words could have spoken. Such a rebuke that never again do we see a hint of the age-old question, who should be the greatest? It's forever answered. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be like Jesus, a servant of all. Unexpected as it was, secret servant that Jesus was, it doesn't end there, it keeps going on. Peter comes out, and there he is in the limelight again in verse John chapter 13, verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now let's go beyond here. Think about this for a moment. Does foot washing water in and of itself do anything for you? The water does nothing for you. It's what you connect with the water. Here Jesus has connected the water with washing away betrayal, washing away bickering, Washing away disunity. Washing away sin. But they aren't getting it. Still. Judas still wants to betray. And Peter still has issues, even here in this text. He wants to go above and beyond even what the others have received. And maybe that was out of some sincerity as well. But Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. He connects the physical act with a belief that allowing Jesus to do this service to him somehow connects his heart to Jesus. He has a part with Jesus. And so when we do foot washing, it's not just, let's get it done and come back in and get the emblems and move on out, especially before noon. It is a physical act that connects us to Christ if we let it. We are being served, someone washing our feet, even though we took a shower last night, more than likely. Our feet, only thing it has on it is fuzz from our socks, or whatever. Physically, I don't need foot washing. But spiritually, I remember as I, was, I was preparing my heart for this during the, during the weeks leading up, I was just saying, Lord, is there anything? Is there anything? And so to me, foot washing then becomes a way of just putting behind me anything that I feel has gotten between me and God. It's a new start. We usually have it at the end of a quarter because then we, we're starting a new focus for the next quarter. But here, it's more than physical. It keeps going on. It says, Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet, because they would get him dirty. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, verse 12, he put on his clothing and returned to his place. Not every one of you is clean. He's already made it around, hasn't he? 
Some people think Peter and John were somewhere close to, to, to Jesus. And so he must have made his way around past Judas already. Gets over to Peter. Has Judas been washed? More than likely. And yet Jesus says, you're not all clean. Finish washing, but you're not all clean. So the physical act of going through the motions can be meaningless if we don't attach some meaning to it. You could literally just go through the motion and, and have someone washing your feet, and you can then wash their feet in return back in one of these rooms. And betrayal could still be there. Someone could be baptized and bitterness still rule their lives. Look at Simon Magus in the book of Acts. And so the water itself means nothing. It's what you attach to it. You're saying, Jesus, I am thankful that you served us. I am thankful you died for me. Cleanse me, wash me. And it's between you, really, you and the Lord. The person who's performing the foot washing is merely serving on behalf of the Lord. You're asking the Lord to cleanse you, not that person. And so betrayal still stayed there. And so, no, I don't want to go through the motions today with you. Otherwise, I'm going to say amen and let's just hit the doors because if you're just going through the motions, the foot washing and partaking of bread and juice will mean nothing to you. It's got to find some new meaning for you today. Whatever it takes to make that meaning, find it and attach it to Christ, the water and these symbols. I know some people want to just keep the symbol and just say, well, we'll serve everybody. We don't need the foot washing anymore. But it's pretty clear that Jesus links it to something meaningful. He links it to himself. And so if we have a secret servant named Jesus, we want him here today. We want to serve one another. We want to be connected to Christ. And he goes back to his place, more than likely the first place on the table. And he asks the question, do you understand what I've done for you? He already knows that they don't. Look at back in verse 7. He knows Peter later on will understand, but he doesn't really realize it. And so, but he asked the question, do you understand what I've done for you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, kurios, this one who's master, and rightly so, for that is what I am. I was looking at this language. Went back to my Greek New Testament, and he uses the same word here that he uses for before Abraham was, I am. Now, it can be used in everyday language. But when you end a sentence like that, when you go ahead and you, you, you put it in certain orders in the language, it's almost like he's, he's ending it, the sentence, by, by using the name right at the end there. I'm your master, I'm your teacher, but I am. I'm more than that. I'm the creator of the universe. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Blessed, happy. It will make you feel like a kinder person. It will make you feel like somehow connected to heaven. I was reading a quotation on child guidance. As a parent, I need help every once in a while. And as I'm reading through this booklet, last night I was looking for examples of Jesus serving, and she links a servant attitude, she says, is the spirit of heaven. It just came to my mind over and over again since last night. I slept on that thing, and here I am mentioning it, just out of the blue work here today. The spirit of service is the spirit 
of heaven. Jesus was literally showing us the way things work in his kingdom in heaven. If the Creator would go ahead and take upon that role in this finite world, does he change? Is he going to continue serving us? Uh, we're going to be serving him. I'll be happy just to serve and, and take the toothbrush to whatever heaven's toilet bowl looks like, if there is one. To whatever floor I could scrub. But it also makes clear in the book of Luke, which we'll go there one more time and then we'll hit the Revelation. Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells a story of a coming servant. Not just a secret servant that pops up and, and he serves you and, and next thing you know he's going up to heaven. But when he comes back, he's going to continue serving. Look at this story. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. We're talking about this, this whole idea of, you know, you've got a whole list of things going on here. Warnings, the parable of the rich fool, this idea of not worrying, but be watchful instead. And so what are we to do while we wait for the master? Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Wow. So we're going to be dressed, ready for service, and then the master comes and knocks, and we're all ready to serve, right? We want to serve the master, just like that one who worked in the field and came home, and he's ready to serve the master now. He just did what any faithful servant would do. That's what we want to be. We want to be ready for service. So whenever that master comes from the wedding, he knocks, and there we are. We're ready to serve. Seems pretty clear. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. So ready for service means watching. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve and will have them, plural, recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Whoa, that's a reversal, isn't it? Here we are, dressed and ready to serve. Here we are, trying to declare to each individual eternal value and serve them in some way. And we have this attitude of service and then Jesus appears. Girds himself and serves us. Dresses himself to serve. And will come and wait on them. Plural. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. So we must be ever ready to serve because that attitude is what Jesus brings with Him. He says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, which you've been faithful in little, right? I'll make you rule over much. He knocks, dresses Himself to serve and waits on us. Where else do you find that in the Bible? Revelation, right? Get the Lamb's Supper. Go back to Revelation 3. You have someone knocking who wants to eat with us. He comes to the church and he wants to bring this spirit of service into the church. That full extent of his love that he showed his disciples. He wanted them to remember it all the way until he came and served them again. 
Revelation 3, verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Does he love us? Does he show us what love is all about? Love is putting the other person first. We find uh, different definitions of it. Now, if you're looking at philos love, you're looking at more of a feeling love or brotherly love. But you go to agape love that this is talking about, that the Pharisees agaped money. They loved money. They chose money over people. So agape isn't a pure word for love. It's actually how you apply it. So if he loves you and he rebukes you, he did it especially to the disciples by washing their feet, he served them, then what happens to us if we accept that rebuke? We become like him. We humble ourselves. We then put the other person ahead of us or above us. And it says here, those I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Turn, humble yourself. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Isn't this already going on right now to us? You read the book Great Controversy, you find the marriage supper of the Lamb has already commenced. It's already begun. He's coming to the church and telling the church, it's all ready. Enter into it with your mind now. Be there with me. And then show the world around you that you're really serious about this and serve them. And so he invites us to his supper, to have a meal with him, a covenant meal where he will serve us. But first we must cleanse our hearts now. We must allow him to cleanse us. Then we begin acting like Jesus acted, with loving service. And then people take note that we've been with Jesus. And they want to be a part of that as well. It really is nothing you can generate. It's all what he has done for you. He says, here I am. I'm willing to serve you. I'm willing to wash everything away. Will you let me? Because once everybody knows and makes that choice for Jesus or against him, then the world ends, doesn't it? And then the secret servant serves again. And so it's my prayer that we will be ready for that great supper and we will prepare ourselves, make ourselves ready for service today. So when he comes, there we will be, ready for our master. We will be expecting to serve him, but he will spread out before us a banquet table and will serve us. What a day that will be. This is all a foretaste to that.